Here's a few words with Adam McFadden of Firehouse Training. Hey, Adam. It's been a bit since I've talked to you. How did last month go? Yeah, last month went really good, Scott. We had the Belief to Fire Chief event with our mutual friend there, uh, Michael Self from the Inner Fire Academy. We had a handful of students sign up and had a great four-hour online training session on motivation and empowerment and accomplishing goals when it comes to not only becoming a firefighter, but also accomplishing your goals in the fire service. So we definitely had a good turnout for that. The other event that we ran last month for the first time with our partners at CBRNE University and Signal Software Application was a live micro-training event. So on the Thursday last month, we ran a live chlorine call where we had a group of firefighters from all over North America. We had participants from as far as Florida and even Saskatchewan here in Canada take part where we dissected a chlorine leak call and discussed some different mitigation tactics and how we would handle that sort of problem. We had some really great feedback, and we're looking forward to running that again this month. A great new platform called CBRNE University, live scenario training for professional firefighters and also those working in the hazardous material industry that are looking for more training when it comes to running a standard hazmat call. How did that app work out that turns your phone into a virtual sensor? Yeah, the app's fantastic. So basically what it does is you download it to your phone, and then you have the ability to receive messages on different parts of an air monitor and the different sensors that are on it, whether it comes to checking flammability in an area, checking hydrogen sulfide levels, carbon monoxide, and even oxygen levels in the environment that a firefighter is working in. So having the opportunity to use that app as the training platforms now, not only through firehouse training, but also CBRNE University, just makes it a lot more interactive for the students. So we've had some great success there, and we're going to be looking forward to using that in most of Firehouse Training's hazardous material training events in the future. Nice. What's coming up this month? This month's going to be pretty good. We have our most popular course running again in class in Fergus. It's our specialized high-rise firefighting tactics course. This practical training program is basically designed to increase knowledge and awareness of firefighting tactics and strategies, even fire protection practices and any type of high-rise fire or high-rise call. The nice thing about this course, we're bringing in some instructors from across the province to discuss some practical applications on what you would do in, in the event of a high-rise fire. Fire challenges and operational deployment strategies. We'll probably be covering some stairwell hose handling and nozzle techniques, a little bit more in-depth on some tactical ventilation as well as some elevator control familiarization and managing water supply. This course is going to be a little bit different. We're going to be completing some more hands-on and practical evolutions. So that takes place on Saturday, October 24th from 9 until 4. And anybody who's interested can actually register through our website. The cost for that is $245. Uh, We always include a lunch with our training courses. Also, for those that aren't in the region or unable to make it that day, we may be looking at some virtual options as well. So contact us here at Firehouse Training for some virtual training options when it comes to that course, and perhaps we can get them involved as well. This month, we're looking at putting our online clothing and apparel store. We've had lots of requests over the last few years, and we're currently conducting pre-orders. So if anybody out there is interested in some uh, Firehouse swag, feel free to contact us through the website. We're looking at anything from sweaters to T-shirts. We have some hats as well. uh, A lot of the firefighters out there like to collect patches. So if you're interested in one of our Firehouse training patches, feel free to reach out to us and check out our swag store. We should be online with that in a couple of weeks. In the meantime, we are putting together an order to get some merchandise and apparel out to those who have supported us the last couple of years. Another event that we have planned for this weekend is our CBRNE University uh, micro-learning training exercise. Again, just like last month with our friends at Signal, we'll be using the software application. Uh, that does turn your cell phone into a hazmat or or air monitor and then chemical detection device. 
some of the things that we'll cover in this month's live scenario. Uh, just as a group, we'll be looking at the effects of how a chemical spill will affect the environment. Also looking at some risk-based response initiatives, chemical detection techniques, and control tactics on what we would do in the event of a hazardous material spill. So the CBRNE University event will happen Thursday night, October 29th. It's a 90-minute micro-training session. And that's for $99. And everybody that participates obviously will receive a certificate of attendance. As discussed just like last month for their virtual classroom, whether it was our hazardous materials courses, trench rescue, and some of our leadership and incident command courses, the outreach across not only Canada but North America has been phenomenal. You know, with all the great content that we offer at Firehouse Training and to be able to adapt over the last few months has given us the opportunity to build relationships with firefighters and aspiring firefighters, not only across Canada, uh, but all over North America. So again, we thank everybody for their support, for coming out and joining us for some of these courses, and looking forward to having them continue to participate with us going into the fall. Awesome. We'll check back in with you next month. That sounds good, Scott. Thank you. Welcome to Multiple Calls, episode 29. I'm Scott Hewlett. You don't have to urge, convince, barter, or demand that people put time and energy into the things and people they care about. In people's personal lives, if they want to learn something new, they seek out the information. If they want to get better at something, they put the hours of practice in. If they want to achieve a goal, they sacrifice and compromise the comfort and pleasure of today for the success of tomorrow. They are dedicated, committed, invested, and loyal despite the barriers and challenges. Some of those very people cross the threshold of a fire station and it all drops away. The city should give me this, training should hand me that, it's not my job, it's someone else's fault. Every fire is different and we'll figure it out when we get there. They show up literally and figuratively when they want to. Fire is their side hustle while their actual passions thrive. In the words of Agent Smith in The Matrix Reloaded, me, me, me. My guest this episode and I touch on the ability to focus, overcome, adapt, and achieve when we have an internal drive and desire, and those that are not only capable of that, but have it in them to inspire and support others in their journey to do the same. Here's my conversation with Malin Johnson. Are you all settled in? You want to get started? Yeah, absolutely. Okay, cool. We'll start out by telling me where you're originally from and tell me about your family and your upbringing. Sure. I grew up in uh, northern New Mexico. I was born and raised in a little town called Taos, New Mexico. It's pretty well known for its art culture. It has a lot of Spanish Native American influence uh, within the area, and I think that's what gravitates a lot of people towards visiting that area. It's about 7,000 feet in altitude, so we've got some great skiing, whitewater rafting, rock climbing, mountain biking, you name it. It's a paradise. I grew up there until about 21 years old, till I graduated high school and kind of lived for a few more years. Uh, growing up there is a little tough being a white kid in a predominantly Hispanic and Native American culture. It was an interesting dynamic going through school. I kind of made friends using humor to kind of lighten the mood in many ways that kind of helped me through that process. I grew up in a trailer park for like the first 12 years of my life. 
My parents originally moved from Wichita, Kansas. My sister and my brother were both born there. Dad brought mom in uh, about the mid-70s, and he started a greenhouse business. And then shortly after that, he kind of got into the heating, plumbing business and kind of stayed there for the remainder. Uh, But growing up as a kid, I was always outdoors. That was my thing. And of course, this was like the 80s time frame, so Nintendo was just about to come out. And of course, we couldn't afford it at the time. So every waking hour I had, I spent it outside, uh, riding bikes in the neighborhood, playing with the kids, baseball, soccer, anything outdoors activity-wise we were definitely into. Dad got me into scouting pretty early on, as soon as I was of age to do so. Scouting definitely helped a lot with building me as a young youth. And I can give credit to scouting when it came to my military career. But otherwise, like looking back, of course, growing up in a small town like that, you can't wait to get out. You have nothing but bad things to say about it. But, you know, looking back hindsight, it's really a nice place to live. That area, you either live high on the hog or you live underneath it, unfortunately. High cost of living. I wanted to move back, but it just wasn't in the cards. So I live in Virginia now. You said you had some trouble making connections. And did that affect your school and academic experience? What was that journey like? Yeah, so really early on, I think I'd like to blame my teachers in a way. I certainly had a few that really didn't focus a lot on the kids and their needs. Even in a very young age, first, second grade, we were just kind of left to our own in many cases. So I never really built study habits. I never really built a good academic direction. So I found ways to kind of get me through to the next grade. Because that was one of the biggest fears was like, you don't want to get held back. That was a, a huge, huge thing that you wanted to avoid. My brother got held back one grade. So with that, it was almost like, don't do it, don't do it. So I found a little unique ways, mostly cheating my way through elementary and middle school. And uh, I think I found one teacher that actually recognized that I was struggling and uh, made it a, a point to take that whole school year, kind of teach me how to create good study habits. Uh, And that really worked. But unfortunately, that was just the fifth grade year. That summer, she spent the time, her own time, meeting me at the library. We were reading books and things like that. But then I moved on to the sixth grade and then old habits caught up. And I wasn't really tested for dyslexia or any sort of learning disability until I got into high school. And that's when it was finally like a bell that rang and they put me in a special English class that kind of helped me through it. But At that point, it was already too late. I was ditching school at an alarming rate and just barely squeezing by with, I think I had like a 1.9 GPA at the time. Ditching school and hanging out with friends was just way more important, a lot more fun. I had no intentions of going to college, so I really wasn't interested. I just thought the workforce is the place for me. I'm going to do the bare minimum. Academics is not the direction I feel that it's calling me, so I barely squeezed by with a high school diploma. So what was the motivation to change? You're close to a degree now. Yeah, I'm working on my associates. COVID threw a bit of a wrench in that. I would have had it by now. I was missing one class. I was officer two for my associates in fire science. I think the biggest motivation in that was maturity and kind of life experience. Maybe having a better understanding, an open heart and mind to the idea of the benefits of education and what it could bring you. My mindset was what I thought about school when I left. And then I, over time, realized, hey, you could do a lot better. And I think a lot of that was being in the military and you have tests and you have exams on a regular basis when you're going through your schooling. So you, you're forced to study. You're forced to look at the information. And then when you pass this stuff, 
because you actually did the work, you realize, okay, I can do it. I just have to dedicate a little bit more time. Maybe I don't study the same way some of the other guys do. We had one guy in the core school that he could just retain anything that he read. So he spent most of the time playing video games because he already read the chapters, didn't have to study, and he scored great. But he just retained stuff. So I had developed new ways of studying, and I realized like I'm actually gaining a lot of stuff, a lot of information out of this. And one of the big factors, too, is I was actually reading some letters that I wrote to my wife when I was deployed, handwritten letters, and I'm rereading those and realizing, like, wow, I've come a long way. And I think that was just time on the computer, practicing, uh, sending emails, rereading them, looking at grammar, taking English classes. That certainly opened my mind to it. Did you start working at a young age? Like what jobs did you do growing up? Um, I started off at pizza delivery. And from there, it just kind of spawned into so many other different jobs. You really didn't know what I wanted to do. After high school, my brother opened up his house, you know, rent-free, come live with me and my wife down in a town called Las Cruces, New Mexico. And that's a southern part of the state. It runs right along the uh, El Paso, Mexico border, right in that area. It's the home of New Mexico State University. And again, I had no desire to go to the university at all, but I worked there, lived with them. I had a certificate in early childhood development that I had obtained while I was in high school. And it was, it was an elective, but they gave us a certification that allowed me to get a job at a daycare. I really enjoyed hanging out with kids, uh, teaching, and also worked at a one-hour photo development place, if if y'all remember those things, at Target. So I developed film part-time and then worked at daycare part-time and just lived with them, blew all my money, had no direction whatsoever. And then they ended up wanting to move to San Antonio, Texas, and I didn't really want to move at all. So I moved back home with my parents and then worked at a youth development program. It's called the Rocky Mountain Youth Corps, which is kind of an AmeriCorps program. I don't know if you're familiar with those. But that's a nationwide program. They take youth and they work with government grants and provide them work opportunities for the community. So rolling around with cans of paint and painting over graffiti and building dugouts at the local parks and pretty much anybody that needed something done but just didn't have the money to labor somebody, they would work with this organization to get that done. And then from there, it kind of spawned on to pretty much anything that I thought this is the next big step for me carpet cleaning to working at the deli at the local ski area. But I really didn't fall into a place until I was probably 21 years old. And that's when I found the fire service. My sister was working in a small town called Red River, New Mexico. And they worked with government grants for homeowners. And these homeowners would apply for us to come in and kind of thin out their property. And that was for fire prevention. I don't know if you're well-versed in wildland fires, but out there just gets hot and dry really fast. So one forest fire would just annihilate a whole community. So we'd go in there and, and mark out the trees and thin them out. So that way the fire would stick to the ground instead of running the canopy of the trees. Did that for a while. And they also had a wildland fire crew, the uh, Enchanted Circle Fire Chasers. They worked during the day, cutting and chipping and hard, arduous labor. And then when we got the call for these small little spot fires or uh, lightning strikes, we were the closest team and we would just gather up, get our gear, and then just go fight wildland fires. And then they were all part of the volunteer fire department as well. Very small town, like I said, three streets. You had River Street, Main Street, and High Street. One department, I think there was only like three career people that worked there, but we were all volunteers. And then from there, it was the medical side. We need EMTs. 
I got my first responder certification and I started working for the ski patrol doing that for a little while. And then I got a phone call from a good family friend who happened to be a recruiter. And that's how it got me started on the Navy. Right. So instead of going from that fire experience into a full career in fire, you decided to go to the Navy. So talk to me about that process. Um, the whole time, you know, when you kind of get that bug and you're like, this is what I want to do. I'm not an academic guy. I like hands-on. You show me how to do something, I'm going to do it and I'm going to be good at it. And that was the fire service for me. I really gravitated towards it, even on the EMS side. I was like, this was great. Doing ski patrol was fantastic. When it came to the dynamics of choosing fire career or the military, everyone that I had worked with said, you have a better chance of getting in if you have military experience or you got to know somebody in this area to get a fire department job. And I was naive. I didn't know any different. So I just kind of took their advice. I'd always had an interest in joining the Navy ever since high school, but I never really pulled the trigger. And I can't tell you exactly why the Navy, but I just kind of gravitated towards it. And so I decided, well, I can do the military thing. I'll get the experience and I'll choose a job that'll kind of put me in the direction. So when I get out, I'll have a higher probability of getting a fire department job. Do you know of Jared Sergi? He just wrote a book, right? Yes, he did. Yeah, I'm in the process of reading that book. I just started that, actually. Nice. How did you then become a damage controlman and then a hospital corpsman? Yeah, so it was a choice uh, between the two. So again, it was a family friend. He had just recruited his nephew, which is the kid I grew up with. We're the same age. And I knew him my whole life. And he had just recruited him. He knew that I was interested in the Navy. So he had me meet with him. And we sat down. He was a master chief and he was in charge of the recruiting district of the state of New Mexico and parts of Arizona. And I said, hey, this is what I'm really interested in now, as opposed to other random jobs that I had qualified for. And again, I had to pass an ASVAB test to get me a score high enough. And up until that point, I really didn't have a big academic background, no knowledge of basic stuff, such as math that the ASVAB test is created by. So I had to take the test and score high enough, but it was between those two jobs. It was, you want to be a fireman, so here's damage control, shipboard firefighter. And the other option is a hospital corpsman. And so I gravitated more towards the hospital core side because I kind of enjoyed the medical side a little bit more. So I just chose that out of the two and went took my ASVAB. And I think I scored one point high enough to be able to get that job. Did you align right away with the structure and discipline of the military, or was that a bit of a culture shock for you? Yeah, I would say it was kind of borderline. I had a foundation from scouting as far as leadership and understanding the rank structure and understanding that you're going to have somebody that's above you. And regardless of whether you like that person's leadership or the direction or the decisions that they make, you still have to allow them to either make their own mistakes or just kind of follow suit. When I got there to boot camp, it was a bit of a culture shock because it's a completely new state I'd never visited. You know, you're in a different area. The weather's different. People are yelling at you, sleep deprived, just try to find some sort of sense of normalcy in all of it. But they tear you down to kind of build you all back up as a team. So you have all these individuals coming there. And the first thought that you have is like, oh man, I made a mistake. Like I could be hanging out with my friends right now, but push through it. Everyone else is pushing through it. And then it gets easier and easier and easier as you go because everybody starts bonding as a team. As that went on, you thrive off of it. You enjoy it. You're looking for that next achievement that everyone's looking for as a team, whether that's, all right, hey, we got a big test coming up. Everybody has to score or pass because if we do, we're going to get this academic flag or the PT flag. At first, everyone's getting physically 
PT to the point that they're vomiting. And we've got this old barracks. It's got no AC. You've got 50 some odd individuals all sharing one giant room. And we're PT into the point where the condensation from everyone's body heat is collecting on the roof. And it's literally starting to rain down on you. You hate it. But when you're done with it, you realize people are paying good money for athletic individuals to come in and do the exact same thing. So it's like I'm getting free training out of this and I'm coming out of this physically better. So you just change your mindset and you accept what's going on because you understand that it's for your greater good. Do you struggle then coming from the military with that perception and experience seeing how some firefighters view their job? Yeah, absolutely. It's interesting that you say that. And I had a real hard time adjusting to civilian life when I got back out. And I think I can speak for a lot of veterans when I say that, because you kind of become institutionalized to the system, the way of life, the way things are conducted. Because of that, when you get out, you have this higher expectation for work ethic. Now, not everybody in the military is spot on, military bearing, 100% professional. You still have the occasional dirtbag, if you will, that just runs through their daily lives. They're always in trouble. They're always doing something ridiculous. But for the most part, you have been stuck in this for such a period of time that that's your way of life. That's your identity. And so because of that, when you get out, you start seeing completely different work ethics that you just do not equate to. And that's hard, especially in the fire service in some cases. And I I think you can say that for any job. There's individuals that just show up, they clock in, they clock out, just meet the bare minimum standards. But at the end of the day, you also realize, especially in the fire service, this is a completely different career job. When you look at it as a whole, this isn't just about uh, a business when it comes to uh, let's come in and let's make some money. Let's do the best that we can and sell, sell, sell. This is something completely different. And so you have to have a different attitude when it comes to it. And unfortunately, sometimes you, you run into individuals that just come in, uh, kick their feet up and they don't do anything. And you just got to try to motivate them in a different way and get them to change in some way, shape or form, whether that's solid leadership or maybe just kind of a peer support role where they see some changes happening in you. They see some changes happening in this person. And eventually they just want to kind of jump on board, even if it's just a little at a time. What was your Navy experience beyond basic training? Yeah. So uh, as a hospital corpsman, once you graduate, you are given a, a, a title, an NEC. It's like a, an enlistment code. This enlistment code basically tells the detailer. Detailer is the person that kind of assigns individuals where they need to go. Based off of that code, they put you at a hospital. So I was a quad zero. Quad zero is basic corpsman. From there, I went to Camp Johnson, and this was right outside of Camp Lejeune, North Carolina. And that's where they trained you for fleet medical corpsman. So from there, I think it was like eight weeks, but that basically you wear the uniform, the Marine Corps uniform, you learn the rank structure, you learn to patrol, you learn like tactical combat, casualty care. And when you're all done with that, they give you a different enlistment code and that's 8404. 8404 basically is the Naval Enlistment Code that says that you are trained and deployable for Marines. I got orders to National Naval Medical Center in Bethesda, and then probably within six months is when... Iraq had kicked off in 2003, but this was around 2004 when I got there. And so they were needing corpsmen very regularly that weren't already assigned to the Marines. So with that NEC, that Naval Enlistment Code, I got put on a list pretty early on to be deployable. So I think I I was there for six months before I got orders to Iraq. I was there for six months total, but it was 25 Navy corpsmen, uh, 8404 corpsmen. 
assigned to army units out through various parts of Iraq. And we were just kind of put into an army unit who fell under the Marine Corps, but we were assigned a battalion of Iraqi soldiers. Right around that time frame, the 2005 time frame, we were really working to kind of win the hearts and minds of the people. We were working with the Iraqi National Guard and all of their entities to kind of train them how to conduct missions, how to patrol, eventually turn it over to them. But they needed the education from us. It was myself and two other individuals who got plucked from Taji when we got there, Taji, Iraq, and got sent to Fallujah for six months. So we lived in the city of Fallujah, patrolled with them and the Marines that were assigned with us and just conducted daily operations. My job not only was to provide them the medical care, but also to teach the Iraqi medics. And that was to kind of bring them in and say, hey, this is how we start an IV. You know, this is a sucking chest wound. These are all the types of treatments. I ran a clinic every day. I had sick call in the morning and the evening, and they would come in. And with the use of an interpreter, I'd kind of get the signs and symptoms, figure out, could I treat it? Could I not treat it? Do we have to make a trip back to the rear to have an actual doctor see them? So it was kind of a whole basket of things that I was responsible for. And then from there, I got back to Bethesda, finished off there. And total time was six and a half years. And like the last three years I spent at Quantico, and that was treating Marine Corps lieutenants. We had a medical platoon put together and we were assigned a company of lieutenants. And every time they would go out doing operations, they would require medical personnel. And we would just get a medical Humvee, which is a 997. And we would just kind of hang out with them and treat twisted ankles and find lost lieutenants out in the woods or scraped eyes, that sort of stuff. What was your experience with it emotionally over those years, positive and negative? It was probably a lot more positive. I mean, I'll definitely talk about the negative side. I think the positive side for me was once you get that 8404 NEC, you can kind of pop your collar a little bit, me personally, because you're trained to be with the Marines. And once you get there, Marines really have a lot of respect for Navy corpsmen. It's an unspoken bond. They call you doc right out the gate. You aren't really treated the same way as another Marine, which I think is really cool. Even the top leadership when you're there, with your, if you're standing with a captain or a major or whatever, they really take your insight of what needs to happen as far as the medical treatment of one of their Marines. They take it to heart. But you carry that with you for the duration. So when you don't have it, you kind of feel at a loss. The negative side of it, For me, it was just, I could have done more. Maybe I should look for another deployment. I'm interested in going back. And partly because I survived one deployment, I learned a lot from that deployment. I'd like to use that education and experience, and I want to go back again. So I spent a lot of time looking for other deployments while I was still active, and then even looked for contracting jobs uh, when I got out because As a corpsman, they don't give you any sort of certification while you're in. There's no national registry. It is their training, which is equivalent to, I guess, it would be like an advanced EMT with some other skills in there as well. You get no certification. So I had to go and get my NREMT basic cert completed before I got out. And that was just in preparation to get out because I'm trying to set myself up for success in some way. Because otherwise, I would have gotten out with nothing and I would have had to go back to school all over again just to do somewhat of the same job. So in a sense, that was really tough on the negative side. And then just dealing with the thoughts in your head, things that took place overseas, and then you're running different scenarios in your head, and you kind of get lost in your own thoughts. So the main goal getting into the Navy was eventually getting into a career in firefighting. 
So talk to me about finishing off with the Navy and getting back to civilian life. Had that decision changed? How had it morphed? And what was your journey like between the two? Sure. Yeah, that was a hard journey to deal with because when I got out, again, I got my EMT basic and that's uh, the best that I could do with the amount of time that I had. And that was an agreement with my chief at the time. It was a five-year contract, but I was on three-year orders to Quantico, but I only had two years left on my contract. That left one year open for empty space until they could fill that with a body. So I worked out a deal with my chief and said, hey, I'll extend my contract another year if you let me go to EMT basic school for 30 days at Walter Reed. So, you know, I traded 30 days for another year for that certification. And that was, again, two years prior to my exit out of the military. I started that process of applying for fire departments because I knew that it was going to take about a year or so, if not longer, to actually get an offer. So I started that process with the education, the EMT basic, two years before I got out. And then, of course, the last year was spent submitting applications left and right. And that was tough. I didn't realize how tough it was really going to be because the Northern Virginia area, just the process is insane. Uh, Started with Fairfax County and putting in applications there, going through their process. And when I say it was an emotional journey, it was because every time you'd finish something, you sit by your email on a daily basis and you wait for the next step. Like, congratulations, you've passed this. The next step will be this. So every day you're checking emails. And then when you finally get it, you're making all these preparations. And of course, I walk into it with a big ego thinking, oh, I'm a shoe in You know, I got military experience. I was a hospital corpsman. I got a deployment under my belt. I got my EMT basic. They should put me at the top of the list. Uh, but when you show up at your written exam and, and the written exam is scheduled over the course of two to four days and multiple sessions in a day and you're standing in line with thousands of applicants and you're talking to a guy next to you and he, he just drove down from Michigan and this guy came from Jersey. You're like, wow, like I think this is a lot harder than I thought it was going to be. So you just go through all of it. You get through the CPAT exam and the personal history statements and all the medical exams that you do in the interviews and you get through it and through it and you're like, I'm getting closer to this one. And then you get nothing. Thanks for the process. But unfortunately, we have went with somebody else or whatever the case was. And then you start the next process. From there, it just turned into, all right, I'm just going to start sending arrows downrange and see if I can hit a target. So it was Alexandria and Arlington and, and Prince William and even in my own county here in Spotsylvania. And it was the same thing. All the way up until the end, I think I tried about six times, which from what I thought was a lot. But, you know, talking to other people that have finally got hired on and they're like at 17 and it's insane. And of course, when you're going through that process, everyone's saying, well, you got to get your medic, man. I had no desire to get my medic. Uh, I just wanted to be a really good fireman, focus on one specific thing. But I still had all this medical experience and knowledge. So I said, oh, well, the hell with it. I'll just go ahead and I'll get my medic. And that was the golden ticket finished up my paramedic. And it was interesting because the person that kind of got me into that department where I currently work is Falkier County. She had kind of brought me in and allowed me to ride with her on a couple calls and while I was doing my precept and stuff. And so we stayed in touch and I was working for a critical care program out of DC, the MedStar, as an EMT basic, just driving an ambulance and driving a critical care team from hospital to the higher echelon of care. And uh, she reached out to me. It's like, hey, we're hiring. Uh, Put your application in. I just completed my medic and I decided this was going to be the last fire department I was going to apply for because up until that point, I had worked so hard and it's been so long at this point. So it's like 2008, I started the process and it wasn't until 2017 that I got hired. 
Now, there was a break in there before I decided to take my medic, and I worked for the Virginia Wounded Warrior Program. But when I was finally done, I said, okay, I'm going to school, getting my medic. All my chips are in, and ended up getting hired with them. And oddly enough, I ended up being stationed at the same station that she was originally at where I did that ride time. So it was just kind of like the universe aligned for me, and the paramedic was the golden ticket for me. It can be tough for some people mentally to come into a program like an EMT basic with people that have no experience at all when they're bringing experience in themselves. And, you know, without the right attitude, you can really be kind of aloof or dismissive of a lot of things and miss the additional training you can get or, you know, where are the golden nuggets in what I'm going to learn through these months. Can you talk to me about your experience that way? Oh, absolutely. I bet I could speak for a majority of veterans. I think that's one of the biggest issues that a lot of us have. Some people can get out and they can get a contracting job because they have a government clearance or they were doing something in the military that was secret squirrel enough to where they can actually work as a contractor just fine. But I would say for the vast majority, it's a huge shock. Part of it is in the military, you have a resume and that resume is worn on your chest. And it's typically worn in the form of ribbons and medals and other accomplishments that you've done. So if you look at somebody and they just have like a, a national defense ribbon, you, you basic boot, right? That's what you call them. They're, they haven't gone anywhere. They haven't done anything. That's his resume. Uh, it tells me exactly what he's done. But then you take on the other side where the person walks in, they got a chest full of medals and ribbons. And you can say, okay, that guy's been to Afghanistan. I can see how many times he's been to Afghanistan or Iraq. I can see whether he's got a, an achievement medal, if he's got accommodation medals. Of those, do they have valor? I can spot a purple heart, that sort of stuff. So you can kind of identify a person where they've been just based off of that. But when you get out, you have nothing. You got a DD-214, and that's a discharge paper that says this is what you've accomplished. And to the rest of society, that means nothing. And, and that's a real hard pill to swallow because you've got guys that are really good at their jobs, guys that have budgeted millions of dollars or they've been responsible for equipment that's top secret. They've maintained fleets of vehicles, but they discharge. And it's like, what now? Like the only thing I can qualify for is a mediocre, just above minimum wage job or maybe in the management sector. That's the only thing that I qualify for because nobody can recognize that I have done all of this stuff because no one looks at a DD-214 in the civilian sector and say, hey, this guy has actually accomplished a lot uh, just based off of what this reads. That was hard for me because, again, I'm trying to show them my potential, but I'm no different than the guy that drove down from Michigan or Jersey. I am just a body taking up a seat at a written exam. Nobody can see the past. Nobody can see what I accomplished up until that point. Now, of course, if they would have spent those six years with me, then they would have known like, hey, we're going to put this guy in a special seat. And I think that's what I had expected was somebody to recognize it and put me in a different bracket and push me through a little quicker to get me into the position because I was 100% on board. I was ready to apply that same work ethic to the fire service as I had given to the military. But it was a huge blow to my ego when it was all said and done, when you get those letters and they just say thanks, but no thanks. And you're just kind of left there saying like, why? That bleeds into your family life and that bleeds into your personal life and you're just lost. You're like, I don't know what to do. Now, of course, I had a, a GI Bill that I could have turned to and I would have gone to school, but I had no desire to be in any other sector of workforce than where I was. During that whole time frame, too, I was working with veterans on a regular basis, worked with them for about four years and, and dealing with a lot of the struggles that they had and kind of navigating them through life together. And that's when I realized, like, OK, I'm going to have to go back to school 
get the education that I need to get those golden nuggets, if you will, that's needed. I can't sit back and just expect them to recognize what I've done. I'm going to have to accomplish the certifications that these guys are requiring. And it sucks, but suck it up and get through it. You know, I was thankful that I went through paramedic school because it taught me a lot more than I had already known. Your typical school that we go through, they don't deal with a whole lot of cardiology and a whole lot of stuff that we deal with out there now because they teach you the basics that you need to know to treat a military-aged male. It's your trauma, it's your IVs, it's your tourniquets, it's the tactical medicine that you need to know. So that definitely helped me kind of bring me back to reality a little bit. I just want to stick with briefly with the wearing your resume on your chest. Is it hard to hide in the military because of that? I guess I just translate that to our service where we're all in the same uniform where it's extremely easy to hide. What are your thoughts on that? As far as wearing the ribbons, I think it's a badge of honor for most. Depending on where you're stationed, you really don't wear them every single day. You just wear them on certain occasions. Most of the time, you just kind of wear a regular camouflage uniform or a digital camo uniform. As far as hiding, I think for us, it was just more of a, when you get that uniform on, you kind of have this pep in your step, if you will. So you're proud of what you've accomplished. And within the fire service, of course, you know, some departments do wear ribbons and things like that. And they, everyone has a different view of what they represent, especially with you know, someone does something heroic, they get a heroic medal. For some of us, we're just kind of like, well, you know, I'm just doing the right thing. That's what I was doing. They gave me something for doing the right thing. I don't feel like I deserve anything. But I think it kind of goes twofold because if it wasn't awarded, people would sit back and say, well, man, I wish I would have gotten something for that, you know? But at the same time, you get it and you're like, well, I was doing the right thing. I was doing my job. So in in a sense, it kind of goes both ways. It's all depending on the person. Yeah. I was thinking also that a lot of people in the service can walk around with a been there, done that attitude when they really haven't been there and they haven't done that. Whereas it's more noticeable on the military end when you do wear those ribbons on your chest. Yeah, absolutely. Because for a lot of them, they're big accomplishments for the most part. Multiple witnesses had to be there. Uh, multiple witnesses have to put in statements towards those awards. That's all combined together. And then and then one person writes it up and submits it. And of course, you know, they just get awarded because I, I think it's the right thing to do to give recognition for what that person accomplished. Because if you look back, you got to think that this is going in the history books. In in the current present time, you're thinking, man, I just did my job. But we'll say 50 years from now, people want to know that story. People want to know what that person did because that's going to be put into the books and motivate the younger generation to be like, I want to be like that guy because I read this crazy story about this individual that did this heroic thing. Because if you look back at those that have been awarded the Medal of Honor or Bronze Stars or Navy Crosses, you know, those stories are written. And of course, you still have thousands of stories that were unwritten. And nobody really knows those stories because nobody actually put it down on paper and, and were awarded those medals. So I think it's important to recognize those individuals because it kind of puts it down in stone for them for the rest of their lives. Yeah, I think Aaron Fields and I talked briefly about this, about accepting awards. Like you said, I don't need it. I don't expect it. It's okay. It was just my job. But I think I agree with you somehow. I think accepting the award is actually for other people more than it is for you. Yeah, absolutely. If you look at some of these books that you read about the fire service, if somebody didn't write that down, we would never know the men and women of the fire service and what they accomplished. Because no matter what age you are, I feel like we all need some kind of role model to want to emulate or the person that I connect with them so much more. This is the type of person I want to work for. One thing I want to touch on before we move forward is that you had to do a polygraph as part of your process. That stood out to me. How was that? 
Oh my gosh. Oh, let me tell you about the polygraph. When I said it was arduous process, there are just very interesting things that some of these counties require. So I've done four polygraphs, I think, and uh, they're all pretty much the same. So they give you a personal history statement. And a personal history statement is interesting because uh, they've got questions in there that are pertinent. I think the department should know, like, have you ever stolen anything from work? And it's funny because, you know, I was in the military, so we don't call it stealing. We call it commandeering or gear adrift is gear a gift, especially when you were deployed too. because I had a hard time with this question, because every time you write an answer, this is a question that's going to be asked on the polygraph. So you have to be truthful. So part of you says, well, they don't need to know about when I went to Camp Fallujah and I'm dropping off a patient and I load my pockets with IV supplies because I need them. I probably could have asked the doctor, but what if he told me no? I need the supplies. So it's that sort of stuff where I should probably put that down. So on one process, you put it down and you're like, oh, maybe they got me there. And the second process, you don't put it down. Whatever the case is, you just kind of, you're messing around with these questions all the time. You're just trying to be truthful because that's what they want. And it didn't really stick out to me until I actually sat down with the battalion chief. And I said, this polygraph is nonsense because you can answer a question. And if you have any sort of deflection or maybe your heart rate increases, you know, they just detect it as a lie. But in reality, they just ask you, what are you thinking about when I ask you this question? Like, have you ever stolen anything from work? Oh, well, I was on deployment. I put IV supplies in my pocket. So that's what I'm thinking about. Yes, I stole and I feel terrible about it. But you just try to justify it every way you can so you can get through the exam. It's stressful. Fairfax polygraph was like four hours long. Some polygraphs are even longer than that. Some of them are over the course of two days, depending on where you're applying for. And they just drill you with questions nonstop. Uh, They go over that personal history statement for the most part, and they look at it and say, okay, if you're truthful in everything like this, they take some questions out of there. They hook you up to the monitor, blood pressure cuff. They put you on a, a seat that senses movements. They put a little monitor on your finger that senses your sweat glands. And they just go to town and they just drill you with questions. And of course, when you walk out of there, you have no idea if you passed or not. So you're stressed. You're stressed going into it and you're stressed during the process. It's chaotic. I think it's a waste of money. I think really digging into somebody's personal background as far as like talking to friends. Facebook is a great opportunity to actually see who individuals are through social media platforms to see what kind of posts that they're posting. You can really truly find somebody, especially when they're comfortable in their own setting. They don't realize that that some of these platforms can really deter some jobs. And I think I know now some employers are starting to look at those to actually see what types of individuals are we hiring. But yeah, it was stressful. And of course, you have no idea if you passed it until you get that letter that says, okay, you've moved on to the next process. Because otherwise, they wouldn't spend the money on more time and energy if you didn't pass it. So you're allowed to place context with your answers? That would be my difficulty if you weren't able to give the context. You mean like answering the personal history statement? Yeah. Yeah, so they go through all these questions like, have you ever committed a crime that you've not been charged for? So you select yes or no, and you kind of write down everything that was there that you can think of. Have you ever done any illicit drugs? And if you did... How many times? Or have you ever smoked pot? How many times? You're just putting these numbers down. Or when was the last time you used? You ever driven under the influence? And then next question is like, how many times? And then when was the last time? That sort of stuff. And the list goes on. We're talking six plus pages of just questions of everything from your family background all the way to current stuff that you're doing. They're all great questions, I think, to a certain extent, but there's some of them that involve like certain things with animals that they ask about, Oh wow! which just throws you off when you're going through this thing. So 
I don't necessarily agree with that. I honestly would love to see the data to see how many people were good candidates based off of that versus departments that don't have polygraphs and see if it really made a difference. Because I think sometimes even sitting down and chatting with a person one-on-one would probably give you a better idea of who they are rather than a bunch of questions. I don't know. Yeah, I thought the polygraph was questionable in its validity. That was my understanding, but I have a fringe knowledge of it, so... People say, oh, you can't even stand up in a court of law. I mean, they're spending a lot of money on these processes. Each candidate costs thousands of dollars for them to get through it. So I'm just thinking from the perspective of county money overall, that could total an entire new recruit class getting hired if they were to combine all that. But again, I have no idea, but I'd love to see the numbers to see those that were successful and those that weren't. You mentioned there was a window between the Navy and the fire service working with veterans. Can you fill me in on that? That was a really awesome experience. I got a job working for critical care. And during that time frame, I was still kind of trying to figure out my life and going through these processes. So you're working a job just like every other person in this area. You work a regular job, but then you're actively in a fire recruit process. So I'm going to the gym, working out, trying to stay fit because you're expecting another CPAT soon. And I'm at the gym and a guy pulls me aside because he recognized a sticker on my Jeep. And he said, hey, were you in the military? I said, yeah. I was a hospital corpsman. And he's like, oh, hey, I was too. And so we start chatting and he says, hey, listen, I I work for the Virginia Winter Warrior Program part-time and uh, we host a combat support group. Right around that time frame, I was really having a hard time adjusting. I was out of the Navy probably only nine months or so and really having a hard time adjusting to civilian life. Going back on that identity of who I was before. And then you're working with guys that show up late for work and they're dirtbags. It was interesting. You want to do the right thing every single time, but these guys don't. And you're wondering why. So that really bled into my daily life. And my wife got to the point where she said, you really need to find some help or you need to find a new home. And that was really hard for me. So, you know, I started navigating. I didn't think about the VA at the time. And so I'm going to VFWs and I'm talking to the old guys from Vietnam. They're like, hey, bud, you just got to suck it up. And at that point, it wasn't working. I had been sucking it up, but it was just bleeding everything that I was. So after our conversation at the gym, he said, listen, I got this combat support group. Why don't you come by? We meet once a week at the uh, Baptist Church there in Fredericksburg. I said, by all means, yeah, I'll I'll definitely check it out. Uh, It took a while for me to roger up and do it. I don't know what my hesitation was, but I went. And after that, I went every week. It really helps because, you know, I'm sitting in a group of individuals. At the time, I think there was like six other guys. We had former Marines and soldiers in there as well. They were all dealing with the same stuff. Daily life, parenting, marriage, school, anything you could think of. Processing life, we all identified with. It was difficult to hear somebody complain about their latte not being right. And you're just standing there like, I'm cool with just a cold cup of coffee. I've been there before. I'm all right with it. So that was tough to deal with. But we worked on it together, which was interesting because now I'm giving advice to other guys. And they're giving me advice because I had processed something at some point that helped me. And then they're in a different place and they're providing me advice of something that they have processed and it was working really well. And then from there, they opened up a part-time job as a peer support specialist. So I assumed the role of the gentleman that had invited me to the group. So from there, uh, I started hosting the groups every week and the part-time job worked into a full-time job. And then I quit the critical care program and started working for them full-time. And that was really nice. It was a state-funded program that really tracked down all the veterans in the Virginia area. I had a very large area to cover, so I would work with the community. I would talk to churches and groups and VFWs and American Legions and tell them who we are, what we did for veterans. 
And then they would just refer vets that were having issues, whether it was like, hey, I can't pay my rent this month. I need some help with that. Then I would track down all the financial resources and I would get them connected to these organizations. So I was kind of like the, hey, I'm going to create a basket for you. And I need you to try to pick from it whatever's going to work best for you. And that included getting them into the VA. I got into the VA myself uh, while in this program and started getting you know, treatments for post-traumatic stress, counseling sessions, and getting my disability letters together and everything else. And I started getting other veterans connected. So I think over the course of like four years, I was able to find my own therapy through helping them and vice versa. So I was able to kind of, I guess, fit into this new mold that we all were trying to figure out the new me because I was trying to live in this uniform that I had just taken off for so long. And a lot of that was like personal change and recognition for all of that. So that definitely helped. And it really kind of helped build what peer support is supposed to do in these type of industries to include the the fire service. Yeah, before we move ahead into your peer support and mental health work that you still do, Talk to me about when you finally got hired on your department and your recruit experience. Yeah, so 2017, I finally got hired on. It was a great experience because, of course, when I got the email, man, I had waited so long to get that congratulations email. I remember I was downstairs. I had printed it off from my phone and I folded it into a paper airplane and went upstairs and I threw it at my wife. Of course, she's like, what's this? She takes it, opens it up and reads it. And it was like the most joyous moment that the family had had collectively in such a long time. My daughter was three years old when I met my wife. So her earliest memory, 2008 timeframe, she remembers me going through a fire department process of some kind. It just had a different county name on it. So 2017 comes along and everybody's now celebrating because we all know like this is a huge accomplishment. I submitted my paramedic card fresh out the seal from the envelope uh, a couple of weeks before their selection. Got in on January of 2017. Our county is a small county, it's just over 600 square miles. So we only had about 13 recruits in our class. So given that it was that small, the process of going through it certainly wasn't overwhelmed in any manner because I'd already gone through Navy boot camp. Field Medical Service School is another boot camp, if you will. Your instructors are a combination of 8404 corpsmen and Marines as well. So you still have to kind of maintain that almost like you're in boot camp. You're just not getting as much discipline. So going into recruit school, I wasn't worried about it at all. In fact, they really relied on three of us that had military experience to kind of help um, mentor and coach some of the youngers through how to shine the boots, you know, how to keep your feet at a 45, how to dress right when you're doing an inspection, things like that, making sure that everybody was squared away. To me, the whole recruit class was really good. We had a great cadre through that whole process, really knowledgeable individuals and definitely helped get us through. So then what were your rookie years like? Uh, so rookie year, it was pretty stressful. Um, I'm a brand new medic. I have my military experience to kind of back me up from that aspect. But now I'm dealing with completely different types of patients. So of course, you're kind of going into it like, all right, I got to get precepted as a paramedic in a very short window. Our county was growing relatively quickly. So our class specifically, we didn't have the luxury of being able to kind of sit back and take our time through our rookie year. We had a lot of stuff to accomplish. Unlike other counties, when you graduate your recruit class and you get into your rookie year, a lot of other counties, you got that one spot like, hey, you're going to be a backstep fireman. So 
you have a very small amount of responsibilities. It's a huge responsibility as a whole to make sure that you're successful, but you're only responsible for a small portion. But for us, uh, we didn't have that luxury. We're very wide open. We have to make huge decisions and we have long transport times and we have a combination of hydrogen areas and rural water areas. So because of that, we didn't have a whole lot of staffing. At the time, most stations were only staffed with two and the volunteers kind of backfilled the rest. So coming out of recruit school, I had my medic to take care of. We had already gotten all of our EVOC emergency operated vehicle training done, engine operator, aerial operator, rural water, things like that. So in that, you have to get your precepting done. You got to become an engine driver and you got to get cleared on as many vehicles as you possibly can. Brush truck and tankers and engines and rescues and aerial as well. But the big priority is prioritized as far as medic first and then engine driver. So during that time frame, like when we weren't running calls, we were out on the engine doing pump operations and drafting and doing everything we can from that aspect to get cleared as an engine driver. But we were still obligated to answer those EMS calls. So we're packing up as quickly as we can and we're dumping hose in the training areas and we're responding back to the station to get the medic unit out. So it was a lot to handle, but certainly was a task that I appreciated because, you know, I had a great group of individuals that kind of helped me through that. Captain Smith and uh, Lieutenant Frederick, huge wealth of knowledge. They knew exactly what I needed to accomplish and how to get that accomplished very quickly. Having a, a good crew and having a solid crew integrity certainly helped me through that first year. Looking back over growing up in your military career, you've mentioned these mentors in the fire service. Can you talk to me about the benefit of mentors in your life and who some of them have been? Yeah, looking back, you can kind of put a huge list together for sure. In my early 20s or even growing up, you know, you're full of piss and vinegar. You know, you really don't want to listen to anybody, anybody that's trying to kind of guide you through whatever the case is. You kind of feel like you're independent and I can make my own decisions. So you really don't appreciate the mentors early on in life. And maybe some people do. But for me, I was just kind of rogue. I kind of wanted to do my own thing. I didn't really start paying attention to the big role models in my life until much later. My wife has got to be number one on that list. It took me a while to actually start listening. I think as a man, personally, I feel like I got this, I can make this decision on my own. And I think this is the right thing to do. But having that sounding board to come back to, to say, hey, I've been thinking about this. I've made a lot of mistakes in that. There's been a few motorcycles purchased that I probably should have gotten some insight on because when it was all said and done, I was like, hey, that's a huge mistake. I should have had some guidance on that. But as far as like life role models, six years in the military, you could imagine the amount of different individuals that I've come across, especially in places like Quantico. At the basic school, you've got droves of captains come through and majors and colonels that have done phenomenal things in their careers. Again, that goes back to those awards. These people were written up for some fantastic decisions that they made while overseas. And now you're working with them. So you're listening to everything that they have to say. You want to be that type of leader. So you're seeing that person and how they are integrated within the platoon or integrated within you. You're taking whatever they have to say, and you're like, that's the type of leader that I want to emulate. But within the fire service, especially now, I had that opportunity to look at the individuals that I work with. And man, we have a great group of people. Kind of gives me that dynamic back that I left when I was in the military. That camaraderie where you spend so much time with somebody that you probably know more about them than you know your own family. You're sitting out on 24-hour shifts with them, so you don't really have much of a choice but to really dive into their personal lives. And that goes into the peer support thing as well and the importance of knowing that stuff. But as far as role models go, my current lieutenant right now, Ben Wilson, he's full of energy. 
And that's something that I need to get me through some of the days where you don't feel like training. This guy wants to train like he wants to get out there. You understand the importance of it. You know, it's like having that guy that always wants to go to the gym. And you're like, ah, I don't feel like it today. He's like, come on, let's go, let's go, let's go. And you, you get into it and you're like, all right, man, thanks for doing that. I've learned you know, something today and I'm going to apply it. The current role model that I have right now is my lieutenant and kind of building that foundation. Like he wants me to be successful. So he's building a platform for me to do that. And that to me speaks volumes for someone's character when they're willing to sacrifice their own time, time for themselves, time away from their family to make sure that you're successful. I gravitate towards role models, no matter where they come from. It's just those individuals that are like-minded. You are pushed towards them because that's the type of person that I identify best with. Expanding on what you've been saying, give me your take on the brotherhood and the family of the fire service. Is it still alive and well? Are we being good stewards of it? How are we doing in regards to that? Yeah, absolutely. And I can only speak for our department. I think, you know, some departments are very regimented. It's structured to the point where the old fire service having fun is not nearly as much as it used to be. But then you've got some departments that have such a historical background to them that they have not changed anything. And and just being in the presence of those individuals in one room just motivates you to be a part of that brotherhood, if you will. I think it's alive and well within our own department. We talk about brotherhood and like what that looks like. The fire service is something completely different right alongside with the military when it comes to that camaraderie, because you spend so much time with these individuals, you really truly know who they are and you're willing to do anything for them. You look out for them. It's simple things like, hey, laundry needs to get done. I'm going to fold my partner's laundry. It's that sort of stuff. I guess you could break it down to you feel like they are a part of the family and you're taking care of one another like they're a part of the family. So you kind of build this love for one another that you care about. And that to me, I think, is, is something that cannot be experienced in other industries. What's your view on the state of mental health in the fire service and how it's being addressed right now? Yeah, that's a good question. Um, we're making strides in the right direction, but I think it's definitely taken a lot longer than I had anticipated. I think post-traumatic stress has always been identified. Uh, it used to be called a lot of different names. Uh, and if you look at the history books, um, you can see that mental health has definitely been there. There's been letters that were written by Civil War soldiers saying how motivated they were to be a part of this movement. And as the years went on, you know, those letters started getting more dark and more dark and more dark until, you know, these guys discharge. And there's, you know, documented cases where suicide took place. And of course, we move on to the next conflict and the next conflict and the next conflict. You know, a lot of our memorials are filled with names of individuals that have lost their lives in combat. And you could put that into the fire department, like line of duty deaths. But the other side of that wall, that blank empty wall, is names that aren't being documented of those that have lost their fight to the battle within their own minds. We talk about culture change. That's a thing that everyone wants to talk about. There are some individuals that are going around and meeting with groups of people and they're telling their story, which is a huge thing to do. It's valuable. It's a recognition. They're speaking amongst the public to say, hey, we need to bring awareness to this. Changing what you believe changes your behavior and ultimately culture changes. So if you believe that mental health is a problem within the fire service and everybody starts to believe that, that's going to change your behavior towards it. So it's going to change the way they talk to one another. It's going to change the way they educate each other. It's also going to change the way they refer individuals to the help that they need. And ultimately, the culture changes on its own. You don't have to do anything for the culture change. You just have to start changing what people believe. That's the first step. We're making strides in the right direction, but it needs to be more internal. There's still a lot of departments that are using more of the HR route when it comes to mental health. The route needs to be more internal, and that's where the peer support comes from. 
because I can talk to an individual because I've worked with them. They know me. I know them. They're more open. They're more open to the idea of discussing personal problems than they were to sit down with somebody who's a complete stranger in some other program that's designed through HR because there's a lot of fear in that. That's really what we're dealing with is individuals are are afraid to really come forth and say, hey, I do have a problem. I'm all right with it, but I'm going to find the best avenue I can to kind of get myself help. I want to deal with this. I want to hit this head on. I want to go through counseling and I want to build a set of resources that push me through so I can continue being healthy in the future. Well, it seems like an obvious fit for you to extend your work with veterans to doing peer support in the fire service. But how did you get into it and how are you going about doing your part? Yeah, so probably like the first six months, I think, I think I was still in my rookie year. Our county had established a peer support program. Uh, the, the two founders of it that created the idea of it and had kind of brought it through through the chain of command. It was really nice to know that the chain of command basically said, hey, I support you 100%. You just do whatever you need to do to make this successful. So they didn't really have a lot of red tape to cut through. They kind of designed this thing. They understood the importance of it. They got trained. And at some point, my name was dropped multiple times. And I don't know if that was through other recruits or other individuals that I had worked with. Most of them, especially through recruit school, they knew what I had done prior to. So I think that's probably what started the whole thing. And they approached me and just asked me if I would consider joining up with their team. They were curious to get my insight on continuing to build this program, things that we were missing. Because up until that point, I knew what they could provide. But I I had also done a lot of my own tracking down of resources specifically for veterans. And I felt like I could do the exact same thing for the members of this fire department in finding things like food resources and counseling services and spiritual resources, getting on like a PT program and diet resources, because it's all encompassing. It's not just mental health. I think it's a whole wellness. So I think by being able to come on board and kind of create that whole chain to say, all right, our individuals, are we healthy? And if we're not, how can we attach something to kind of drive them through? Because again, this is based off of my experience. I started off dealing with a lot of issues and becoming this new mold. And I had to find my own way which meant that if I need to find counseling, all right, here are some options that I can try. And if it doesn't work, I'm going to throw that stuff out. Everybody's body is like a vehicle. And we all know that as things break, you need certain tools for it. And sometimes those tools may not work. I don't know every ratchet, but I know that what I typically do is I crawl under the car and I try three or four that might fit. And you just kind of go through it and be like, all right, that one's a little too big. I'm going to try the size down. And you get it until it works. That's kind of how I get some of these individuals through to say, there's some resources that are not going to work for you, but you've got to try another tool to figure out if that one works. That's why some counselors work for some people and they don't work for others. But at least having a list of individuals that they can turn to certainly helps. And that's really what we wanted to create for our county. What's your personal approach today for your own mental health? What's your process? Yeah, that's been a long process for me, a relatively interesting journey. I was involved with church pretty heavily for a while. My wife and I both were. And then we took a trip to Israel. And after that trip to Israel, I kind of realized, you know, while I was going to church, I never really felt comfortable. I never really have. I always felt like you were just kind of boxed in and you got people raising their arms and they're singing and stuff. I was very uncomfortable with that. Never really dove in, if you will. For me, I always felt more connected to the elements. I always questioned what is God. 
human beings have this tendency to try to put some kind of a picture together of what they feel identifies with that. For example, the Navajo code talkers, they didn't have a word for tank. So they use the word for turtle when they were in World War II. So it's kind of like that. I don't have a word for it. So I'm going to create something that identifies what we're talking about. So for me, I was always better connected to the outside. I always felt like the presence of God, the presence of life was all around us at all times and felt like the four walls of a building just wasn't where I found it. So I started that journey and started finding more well-being when I was outside. So mountain biking and fishing and kayaking and doing that sort of stuff to kind of bring myself back to center a little bit and enjoy the little things in life. And of course, family has a lot to do with that as well and enjoying those things together. So that's where I found a lot of my wellness. I've done the counseling before. It's worked for me. I build off of it. You just take little things from it. You apply it to your life. There's certain things that we all struggle with, and we're all trying to process that in our own minds. We're all trying to figure out a word for tank, and we're trying to put a picture to it. And sometimes it doesn't make sense, but by going to somebody that is looking through a different lens than we are, they're able to kind of put things into perspective a little bit differently, provide you some advice. And sometimes that's the light that you need to kind of get through whatever you're dealing with. And that's why when I talk about my wife, that's kind of what she's done. Hey, I'm struggling trying to deal with this. What do you think? She puts it into a different perspective a lot of times that just makes me wonder like, huh, I never thought of it that way. And I think that's the biggest step, the humbleness of being able to stop yourself and say, hey, I'm not going to figure this out on my own. I'm okay with it, but I'm going to find somewhere where I can actually get an answer. So for me, it's been a pretty interesting journey, but I found a lot of help by helping other people because by me coaching them through something, it's also a reminder that I still need to do the same thing. Tell me about the Fleet Marine Force Warfare Pin. Yeah, so the Fleet Marine Warfare Device, you know, I started thinking about this a couple of weeks ago about work ethic. This pin is a full circle of where I came from as far as my academics as a child and during my youth and where I am today and understanding that process. So the fleet warfare device, the Navy has a lot of warfare devices. Everyone's familiar with the SEAL Trident, and that to me is by far my favorite one. But second to that is the fleet Marine Force pin. First time I ever saw it was core school, and one of our cadre came in, he was wearing it, and I'd never seen it before, but it had the Eagle Globe and Anchor with the cross rifles and the beach on the bottom with the, the waves crashing up. Right at the bottom, it says Fleet Marine Force. And I gravitated towards it. It was something that I wanted. If I got anything out of the Navy, I wanted that pen. What it is, is basically anytime you're stationed in a certain place that offers the ability to obtain one of those, you put forth the effort. A lot of times it's voluntary. And they give you this big book that includes the history of the Marine Corps, all the way from Grandpappy Boeington to all the weapon systems, uh, M1A1 Abrams, and how fast they can go with different types of NBC equipment. It is a full-on everything about the Marine Corps. So the first opportunity that I had to get it, I was in Fallujah, and I get back to the battalion aid station, and there's a senior chief, and I kind of introduced myself. I said, hey, I'm living in the city. I don't have any medical supplies. I'm just kind of see if I can use you guys as a resource. So they get me all set up. I finally got morphine for the first time, and they stacked up my medical bag. But he said, hey, while you're here, you want to work on your FMF badge. I tell you what, I almost peed myself because... I didn't think I was ever going to have an opportunity to accomplish that. Of course, I said yes, and he handed me the book. 
He said, everything you need to know for the written test and the board review is in this book. So I'm taking that back to the city with me. And I'm looking at this thing. It's like, man, it's overwhelming. Up until that point, I had really struggled to get through all my schooling to get where I was. I had no study habits. I hadn't really established any way of like, how am I going to do this? This is a lot of information and anything could be testable. So after about a couple of weeks, I said, you know what? I want that thing bad. I always have. I want that device. So I cracked the book open and started making flashcards and quizzing myself, just starting in one chapter at a time. I just developed this habit. I want to be successful. I want to complete this. So I started putting all these little flashcards together, kept them in my cargo pocket. Anytime we were out in the city on patrol or we were sitting on an IED or something like that, waiting on EOD, uh, I just pull these things out and flip through them, memorize everything I could. And finally, after about three months or so, I felt like I was ready to a certain extent, of course, because I had nobody to talk to, nobody to tell me how the written exam was going to go, how the board was going to go. I just said, you know what? It's all testable information. I'm going to just verbal diarrhea this as much as I can. Took the written exam, sat in the oral board and completely blew it out of the water. When I was finished, we get up and the petty officer that was there, he was a second class petty officer. He pulls me aside and said, you did really well. He said, do you have a pen? I said, no, I, you know, I wouldn't purchase a pen without earning it. So he takes it off of his chest and he pins it on me. And he didn't know me from Adam. He knew of me from stopping by the battalion aid station. I wasn't assigned to him. He knew nothing about me. But just that gesture alone, the feeling of accomplishment kind of took me to that self that identified with, I'm a member of their club. I got it. I finished it. And man, I'll tell you what, it was one of the greatest accomplishments that I had ever achieved up until that point. And to others, it's just a stamped piece of metal. They die cast these out in the thousands and they send them to naval exchanges all over the world. But to me, it was an identity now. And I wore that thing proudly. That was a huge lesson for me because after that, I still use that experience to this day when I'm trying to accomplish something that I feel like I'm overwhelmed with because I know that, hey, you didn't really have very many study habits up until that point, but you developed something because you wanted it bad enough. So I apply that in every aspect of my life. When I'm faced with some sort of task that I feel like I'm going to be overwhelmed with, that kind of carried into my academics with college. Like, hey, I don't know nothing about college English, but you know what? I'm going to figure this out. So that to me was a huge task that I appreciated actually finishing because it has definitely driven me to recognize that there are some things in our lives that are absolutely important to us, but we have to put the work in. You're going to have to create those proverbial cards, keep them in your pocket, and you're going to have to study. And you're going to have to do the work. Nothing's free. And that, to me, was a fantastic experience. Based on your experience with mentors, is it easier for you to recognize people that could benefit from mentoring? And are you mentoring anybody in the fire service above and beyond your peer support work? Yeah, I think it's, it's extremely important to have some mentor within the fire service in some capacity, even if it's just small. I think it really starts with the individual's recognition that the fire service is extremely important. However that looks to that individual, uh, it could be as simple as just recognizing that an individual is struggling with something. It's easy just to turn a cheek and be like, oh, they'll figure it out. Or they should have known this. They've done the training. I don't know why they're struggling with it. Instead of taking the time to say, hey, we all struggle in certain aspects of our life. I'm going to take the time and we're going to work through this together. The other side, you have to have the ones that are receptive to the information. You had to have ones that are humble enough to come to you and say, hey, I don't know this. Show me. Let's do the work together and build off of that. Outside of the peer support, 
there's a lot of opportunities. There's opportunities all around you to be a good mentor, even if it's just a citizen. It's easy to just sit in the back of a medic unit and just type away at your computer. It takes so much more to sit down and coach a patient through life struggles as a whole. We are so much more than what the job entails. We're maids, we're cooks, we're shepherds, we're coaches, we're mentors. We're doing all of this throughout the day. Even in our own time, in our free time, we're doing so much more. And then, of course, you know, 911 is called, and then we do that job. But when we're not out there, there's a lot more going on that kind of go unseen, unnoticed. This is just what we do as a family. And I think that's where that mentoring comes in, is bringing the family together, being a good steward for those individuals. Where can people reach you if they want to connect with you and chat with you individually? I'm on social media, of course, as, as most everyone. You can find me under my first name, Malin, M-A-H-L-O-N, Johnson. Feel free to reach out to me. I'm also on Instagram under the underscore wood underscore parlor, and that's where you're going to find me. Do you want to expand on that? Do you want to tell me about the wood parlor? Yeah, so um, I've always done woodworking since I was very, very young. I just kind of started doing a little bit more craft projects and building off of those and creating more. And there was a little shop down here in downtown Fredericksburg that would showcase my stuff and he would buy it from me. And I just kept going on that. And I found a lot of therapy in just being able to do small projects like that kind of gave me something to do, something to look forward to, a task to accomplish and submit, get some money for it. Uh, so it definitely helped me in that aspect too. Awesome. Really appreciate you taking the time to talk to me. Yeah, absolutely. I can't thank you enough for the opportunity to get the word out to everybody and just kind of expand people's minds a little bit.